All right, this evening we're looking at Jeremiah 37 and 38. You'll notice from the outline of the macro structure, which is repeated from our last time uh, with this book, I'm suggesting narrative symmetry between chapters 34 and 38. Last time we met, I lined out the parallels based on the kings designated at the beginning of each chapter. And I filled those in for you on the outline tonight. We also noted chiastic arrangement of these chapters last time. And now I want to ponder uh, a little more why this is so. Why does Jeremiah place these chapters in narrative symmetry and do so uh, chiastically? Now, my argument here is that he does it for a purpose, and so we want to reflect for a moment on that potential purpose. We observe that he frames the king who first rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon with the last king of Judah who, deja vu, rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. The symmetry then is a symmetry which reflects the acts of rebellion. The rebellion of the first rebel Judean king and the rebellion of the last Judean king. The chiasm then mirrors the mutual folly of two silly though evil rulers in Jerusalem whose narcissism brought the wrath of God down upon the entire nation. The moral aspect of this symmetry, namely the depravity of Jehoiakim and the depravity of Zedekiah, is explicitly stated in 2 Kings 24.19 and echoed in Jeremiah 52, verse 2. This is what the text reads, And Zedekiah understood, and Zedekiah did evil in the sight of the Lord, like all that Jehoiakim had done. All that Jehoiakim had done, Zedekiah imitated. Evil, sinful rulers bring misery and suffering on their entire nation as God balances the scales of justice with the consequences of tyrannical megalomaniacal injustice and sin. I think then that part of the explanation for the symmetry and this chiastic arrangement is the underscoring of the moral character of the last two significant kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, Zedekiah and Jehoiakim. They mirror one another, and that's the chiastic pattern, and they are symmetrically reflective of one another. In fact, they frame one another in terms of their own sinful wickedness. Now, Jeremiah is certainly providing a narrative prelude to chapter 39 of his book. 
chapter 39 of Jeremiah will describe the destruction of Jerusalem, a description, a description which will be duplicated and enlarged in Jeremiah chapter 52, so that we may note once again that Jeremiah uses a framing device. This time, chapters 39 to 52 of his book are bracketed with the conclusion of his revelation. Revelation of the great day of God's judgment in the Old Testament, his judgment upon Judah and Jerusalem in 586 B.C. In between chapters 39 and 52, which record the denouement of that judgment, in between is the narrative of Jeremiah's and Judah's story post-586 B.C., as well as the revelation of God's wrath against the nation's who consented to and abetted in the destruction of Jerusalem, including mighty Babylon. We will get to those chapters subsequently, but we'll note that the final portion of this book, chapters 40 through 51, are actually framed once again by chapter 39 and 52, which are repetitive narratives of the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. The consequences then of that post-586 act are sandwiched in between the frame which features the denouement of the kingdom. Successive narrative framing devices featuring the causes and consequences of God's judgment, God's final judgment upon Judah and Jerusalem, Judgment in Retrospect and Prospect. Now, we turn our attention to the narrative symmetry, which is in chapters 34 to 38. And we begin with observations on chapters 37 and 38. Are these two separate and distinct narratives? That is, do they tell two distinct stories, or are they a conflation of one story with inconsistent or variant details? Those of you who may have read them in preparation for tonight may have never suspected that there are anything other than two distinct stories, two reports of Jeremiah persecuted and suffering Two reports of Jeremiah suffering on two different occasions. But many commentators on these two chapters, many mostly liberal or higher critical commentators, seek to persuade you that there is one story here botched by poor editorializing, and they, that is the liberal higher critics, have been anointed by their PhDs to demonstrate the fabrication of two into one, by reversing the process, that is, that is, via their enlightened logic, they will tease out the single narrative from the awkward and contrived redaction or editorial work of the foolish editor who tried to combine two chapters into one. Well, let's take on the critics then. Uh, let's ask the liberals for the primary documentation from the text. And that's the reason that I'm proceeding with a narrative comparison of chapters 37 and 38 at the outset. 
Now, as we look at these two chapters, there are a number of places where we can do narrative analysis. And one of those places is with respect to location. <clears throat> if we had a movie camera production crew <clears throat> on site, we would ask them, where are they on location in chapter 37 and 38? So we want to look at that aspect of these two chapters. Second of all, we could look at characters or uh, prominent characters. And uh, that's another aspect which will enable us to evaluate uh, whether or not we have two narratives or one. And finally, or perhaps most significantly, <clears throat> is plot sequence. In other words, analyzing these two chapters in terms of the sequence of the plot of each chapter as it falls out in, tor- in terms of the storyline. All right, now, uh, going back to location, uh, <clears throat> let's take a look at where chapter 37 closes, and you'll find that in verse 21 of the chapter, and when anybody has uh, examined that verse and thinks they know where the chapter closes, just blurt it out. In the court of the guardhouse, all right? So the location for chapter 37's close is the court of the guardhouse. What about the close of chapter 38 in verse 28? Once again, anyone? Once again, the court of the guardhouse. All right. Now, this could suggest similarity and confusion of, of two stories into one. But let's hold off for a minute as we look at where do the stories open? That is, where do the chapters open up? Where are we on location at the beginning of chapter 37? And as you take a look at verses 1 and 4, where does the, the uh, chapter open? Well, let me ask it this way. Does it open where it closes? No, it does not open where it closes. So we are not in the court of the guardhouse as chapter 37 opens. All right, what about chapter 38? In Jerusalem in general, any can you be any more specific than that, Ben? Look up at verse 21 of chapter 37. How do you know from verse 27, 21 of 37, rather? What would suggest to you that chapter 38 is opening in the same location that chapter 37 closed. Your head's up, Abigail. Do you have something to suggest? Um, I don't think it does. You don't think it does. Okay. What do you make of the word remained in that verse then? Who remained in the court of the guardhouse? Jeremiah. Jeremiah remains there. And in uh, verse 2, actually in verse 1, who is speaking? 
Jeremiah is speaking. So, presumptively, we are in the same location in the opening of chapter 38 as we are at the close of 37 because of that word remain that occurs in 3721. There's no reason to suggest that the transition is not a transition of him being in the same location now speaking a different message, which means that we have a difference of opening. He is not in the court of the guard at the opening of chapter 37. He he remains in the court of the guard at the opening of chapter 38. All right, now going to another location, namely the Benjamin Gate, which is cited in verse 13 of chapter 37 and chapter and verse 7 of chapter 38. Who do we find at the Benjamin Gate in chapter 37? And when you take a look at it, just blot it out, anyone? Jeremiah is there. Who else is there? The captain of the guard. What's his name? Oh, my. Uh, looks like Elijah. Elijah. Very good. We have Elijah and Jeremiah at the Benjamin Gate in chapter 37. Who do we have at the Benjamin Gate in chapter 38? King. King? King who? Zedekiah. Zedekiah, very else. And who else? Yeah. Anybody else at the Benjamin Gate in chapter 38? Pardon? The Cushite. Yes, what's his name? Abed-Melech. Abed-Melech. What's that mean? I'm not sure. What's Eved Melech mean? What language is that? Terry, what language is that? Eved Melech. Is it Kushite? What's a Kushite? Where does a Kushite come from? Abigail, where does a Kushite come from? I'm not sure. I didn't, I didn't understand. I don't know. You don't know where Kushite comes from. Very important word in the Bible. Lots of Kushites named in the Bible. May, uh, Moses even takes a Kushite wife. What color of skin did she have, Abigail? She was black as ebony. She's African. She's Ethiopian. Kushites are Ethiopians. Okay. All right. So, Evan Malik is a black Ethiopian. But that didn't answer the question of what this language is. What's this language? Evan Malik. Well, what would you guess? Hebrew. Hebrew, yes. And what does it mean, Scott? It means servant of the king. It means servant of the king. Ebed means servant. Ebed Yahweh, the Isaiah 53, servant of the Lord. Okay, Ebed Yahweh, servant of the Lord. <clears throat> so Ebed means servant. What's Melech mean? Scott? King. king. Melech means king. All right, so he is a servant to the king. This is probably not a personal name. It's a name of designation. But at any rate, that's how we know him. So notice that we have two different characters at the Benjamin Gate in chapters 37 and 38. Therefore, we don't have the same narrative in chapter 37 and 38. We're indicating that we have distinct stories or distinct narratives. Finally, where is the cistern in chapter 37? Verses 15 and 16. 
tell you it's where? In the house of a person named Jonathan. All right. Now, in verse 6 of chapter 38, where is the cistern? It's in the courtyard, but we need a name associated with the courtyard. Malchiah, yes. It's on my Malchiah's property in the courtyard. Now, we can't say anything more specific about what property this is, but the possessive there, it is Malchiah's cistern. So obviously he has some property there in the courtyard. Once again, notice the difference. <clears throat> the individuals who own or have something to do with the cistern are different in each of those two chapters, suggesting distinct narratives, two different narratives. <clears throat> All right, now, with respect to the characters, <clears throat> what's an antagonist? Pardon? A foe. All right, somebody that's against you. All right, so who's the antagonist in chapter 37? He is not an antagonist in 37, interestingly enough. Notice verse 14 again. Elijah. Elijah in uh, verse 13, it's continuing over into 14. Elijah is an antagonist, and who else? Notice verse 15. The officials. All right, so we have two antagonists against Jeremiah in chapter uh, 37. Who is the protagonist in chapter 37? I didn't give you a line for that, but what is a protagonist? Okay, what's a protagonist? You gave us an antagonist. What's a protagonist? If an antagonist is somebody that's against you, what's a protagonist? Someone who's for you. Who's for Jeremiah in chapter 37? Verse 17. Zedekiah is the protagonist in chapter 37. Very interesting, isn't it? All right, now what about chapter 38? Who's the protagonist in chapter 38? Once again, we're at verse 7. Who would you guess without even looking it up? Who? Not not Elijah, no. Who's who's the protagonist in protagonist in 38? Oh. Melech. Yes, Melech, the servant of the king. He's the friend of Jeremiah there. Who are the antagonists in chapter 38? Verse 4. The officials. The officials and verse 5. Zedekiah. Flip-flop. All right, now, the importance here is to note the contrast between antagonist and protagonist in 37 and 38. And the reason is that this emphasizes more specifically the distinction of narrative, which is the point in attempting to uh, <clears throat> to defend the integrity of these two stories and not to allow the liberal higher critic to combine them into one awkward uh, of, uh, editorial or redacted uh, 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 narrative. 
fabricated narrative. All right. Now, plot sequence. This is what I regard to be as the most significant of uh, the uh, of the telltale signs here, which distinguish the two narratives. What's going on in chapter 37 with respect to the siege of Jerusalem as you look at verse 5? The Chaldeans uh, were besieging Jerusalem and then moved away because of uh, the news they heard about Egypt. Okay, what did they hear about Egypt? That Egypt was going to help uh, Jerusalem. Very good. All right, so here's the, here's the scenario. We've got Nebuchadnezzar's troops around Jerusalem, okay? They're laying siege to the city. They've got it closed in. They lift the siege. They move their army away. Why do they move their army away? They hear a report that the Egyptian army has come out of Egypt and is approaching Judah and southern uh, southern Judea, right? So they lift the siege of Jerusalem, turn to face the threat coming from the Egyptian army to the south. Now, you have a map uh, in your packet from the Carta Bible Atlas, map number 162, which shows you schematically uh, <clears throat> what happens in this incident. You'll see the circle around Jerusalem, and then you'll notice the arrow going down what is today the Gaza Strip. That's that strip of land uh, underneath the word Philistines. And that arrow is the direction of the Babylonian army as the siege is lifted. And you'll notice that the name of the Egyptian pharaoh is given in that little box uh, labeling that line. It is Pharaoh Hophra, and we'll talk a little bit more about him later on. All right, so chapter 37 opens with the Babylonians lifting the siege of Jerusalem and taking their army to face the threat of the invading Egyptian troops. What do we find with respect to the siege in chapter 38? Verses 2 and 3. Well, it sounds like there's a siege. Cause if they siege has not been lifted, is it? They stay, they're going to die. Yes, they're going to die. In other words, the certainty of the destruction is emphasized which means that the siege has not been lifted and the Babylonians are around the wall. Right, now we want to keep that sequence in mind because we want to talk about how we're going to coordinate all this, but nonetheless, notice the difference between the two narratives. <clears throat> there is a, a, a plot sequence distinction. What drives the, uh, the plot, what drives the narrative in chapter 37 is the lifting of the Babylonian siege. What drives the plot in chapter 38 is the fact that the siege of the Babylonians hasn't been lifted and they're around the walls. There are two distinct sequences of plot crisis. All right, now, who is at the gate in chapter 38, 37 rather? Verse 13 again. 
What happens at the gate in chapter 37, verse 13? Jeremiah is arrested and he will be confined in the cistern. Okay, now what happens at the gate in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 38? Is Jeremiah confined in chapter 38, verses 7 and 8? What does Zedekiah do? Pardon? Yes, he's rescuing him. Okay. Ebed-Melech goes out to speak to the king and... Jeremiah is set free. He is set free from arrest as a result of Ebed-Melech approaching the king at the gate. So he's no longer confined uh, as he was in chapter 37. Consequently, we have a distinction of Jeremiah's situation in 37 compared to 38. All right, now combining all of this analysis, we support what you instinctively suspect when you read the two chapters from your naive point of view. I'm not insulting you when you say the naive point of view. It's simply the way you read the text in a straightforward manner. In order to to change uh, that uh, common or obvious reading of the text, then you you have to insert confusion into it. You have to posit that it can't be two different narratives. It has to be some confused editorial morass, and therefore you invent a whole theory of how the two chapters are actually confused. Who's confused are the higher critics who want to uh, impose this kind of chaos into the text when it's not necessarily there. And when we analyze the text carefully in terms of location, character, and plot sequence, we notice that there is a distinct difference between the narratives in the two chapters. They are two different experiences of the prophet Jeremiah. He is under duress in two different ways, and the results of that duress are different in both two, in those two chapters. Therefore, we conclude that your, your common sense reading the text is correct and it can be supported by a narrative analysis of the material in the story. Any questions about that? You may think that this is an esoteric exercise. It's not. The commentators that write uh, uh, that this is one story which is conflated into two chapters are legion. And I'm simply addressing that and defending it on the basis of uh, narrative analysis from the text itself. Scott? What would they do in the Western when there's two five gunfights in the same movie? They invent a redactor. <laughs> Liberals are great inventors. <laughs> All right, now... <clears throat> We noted last time that chapter 35 and chapter 36, because they occur during the reign of King Jehoiakim, are linked together. And here I want to underscore the interface which links the two chapters. 
First of all, the king is the same in both 35 and 36. We've already seen that up in the chiastic macro structure at the top of your handout. But if you want to put labels in this area, Jehoiakim under 35 as king and Jehoiakim under 36 as king. Now, what about the position of Jeremiah? In chapter 35, take a look at verses 2 and 4 and tell me what the position of Jeremiah is. Verses 2 and 4, chapter 35, see if you can tell me what the position of Jeremiah is. When you come up with it, just blurt it out. He goes into the temple, doesn't he? Which means that he is not barred from the temple, correct? He has open access to the temple. All right, now let's take a look at chapter 35, 36 rather, verse 5. Okay. That's right. He is barred from the temple. He cannot go into the house of the Lord. So the linked interface is an interface of contrast. That is, Jeremiah's access, his freedom to go into the temple is changed between 35 and 36, even though it is during the reign of King Jehoiakim. All right, now, what round character do we have in 35 and what round character do we have in 36? What do I mean by a round character? Scott, what do I mean by a round character? character that develops and has numerous characteristics. Very good. And distinction from what kind of a character? A flat character whose name is just given. Now, we've got a number of individuals in these chapters who just have their names. We don't know anything more about them. But in 35, we have a round character who's pretty well developed. What's his name? He's a Rechabite, isn't he? In fact, he's the leader of the Rechabite clan. What's his name? His name is Jonadav. And he is a round character. Now, by round here, I'm also underscoring the fact that he is a positive character in the narrative. He's more or less a guy that's wearing a white hat. He's a good guy. He is not antithetical to Jeremiah, and he is not antithetical to God. So he is a positive, round character. He is not a flat, antithetical character. So, Jonadab in chapter 35, who is the round character in 36? Carrie, who's the round? Go ahead, Kay. Who's the round character? Baruch. Baruch, yes. What does he do, Kay? He writes what Jeremiah tells him. He writes Jeremiah's scroll, doesn't he? And what happens to that scroll? Terry, what happened to that scroll? It got burned. Who burned it? King Zedekiah. Not Zedekiah. Jehoiakim burns it. All right, so we have uh, round characters here. Uh, who are not hostile to Jeremiah, and they uh, support uh, the narrative of his own prophetic career. All right now, in chapter 35, what is the fate of Jeremiah? Is he in danger in this chapter? 
He goes into the temple, talks to the Rechabites. Did anybody try to arrest him? Did anybody try to throw him into a cistern? No, he is not in danger in chapter 35. What about chapter 36? Notice verse 26 of chapter 36. He was barred from the temple. But what about verse 26? What about his fate? Abigail? He's what? Arrested. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I didn't hear. He gets arrested. He gets arrested. What else happens? They try to arrest him. The Lord hides him. He hides him and Baruch. So he's protected by the Lord in chapter 36. Chapter 36. So he is in danger in that chapter. He is not in danger in chapter 35. All right. Now, what about the motif of these two interfaced chapters? There's a similarity here in terms of motif, which is duplicated. And that's another reason why these two chapters are linked together. What is it? Well, what's the motif that dominates Jonadab's testimony? It is loyalty to the word of his forefathers. Loyalty to the word of his forefathers. Now, why do we have this story in the book of Jeremiah? Why is Jeremiah told to go deal with the Rechabites by the Lord in chapter 35? What is the point? of God having him encounter Jonadab and the Rechabites. Because the loyalty of the Rechabites stands in opposition to the disloyalty of the children of Judah and Jerusalem. They're disloyalty to the word of God. All right, now what do we have in chapter 36? What is the issue in chapter 36? Is it another issue of loyalty? And if so, what loyalty is it to in chapter 36? It's the king's loyalty to God, to God's word, isn't that? It's loyalty to the word of God, isn't it? And who is who is is the king loyal or not loyal? No, now he's disloyal. He burns the scroll. So much for the word of God. Put it in the put it in the brazier and burn it up. Okay? Now, this disloyalty of Judah and Jerusalem stands in contrast to Baruch's loyalty to the word of God as well as Jeremiah's. So that motif is consistent. Notice, it's the issue of being loyal to what has been the standard code of behavior and code of faith in your historical path. Your forefathers, for the Rechabites, it's the word of Rechab has been passed down through generations. And in the case of uh, Jeremiah and Baruch, it's the word of God which has been written on the scrolls which Baruch has presented and read. All right. 35 and 36 then have this common theme, this common motif, and very interesting characters who support it. All right. Now, you'll notice that my macrostructure attaches the parallel or the symmetry bracket between chapter 34 and chapter 37 and 38. In other words, I'm arguing that there is a 
uh, a parallelism between 34 and 37 and 38. Now, how do I make that case? First of all, what is the crisis in chapter 34? In order to determine the crisis in chapter 34, we need to look at verses 21 and 22. I'm going to ask Ben to read those two verses when he finds them. I want you to listen as he reads them carefully. And then I want you to answer the question, what is the crisis that is before Judah in verses 21 and 22? Ben? And Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials I will give into the hands of their enemies, and into the hands of those who seek their life, and into the hands of the army of the king of Babylon, which has gone away from you. Behold, I am going to commence, declares the Lord, and I will bring back, I will bring them back to this city, and they shall fight against it, and take it, and burn it with fire. And I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitants. All right, now, as you read and understand those two verses, what is going on with the Babylonians? This is is where they were lifting the siege and returning. Yes, very good, Ben. Notice, they've gone away. Where have they gone away? To Egypt. To, to face Egypt. They actually didn't go into Egypt. Okay, you remember from your map, <clears throat> the Babylonian army doesn't have to go into Egypt. All they have to do is stop the advance of the Egyptian army as it's coming up the Gaza Strip, what we call the Gaza Strip today. All right, <clears throat> so they've gone away. In chapter 34, the crisis that we noted, which is common <clears throat> uh, up there uh, in chapter uh, <clears throat> uh, 37 and 38, is also present here. In other words, they'll come back, verse 22 of chapter 34, they will come back after they have confronted the Egyptian army and the Egyptian army will retreat at the advance of the Babylonian troops. All right, now, what is the crisis in chapter 37? We've already noted this. But there are more details in the rest of the verses. Okay, if you would find 37, we've already uh, noted verse 5. Would you read verses 7, 8, and 11 for us? Chapter 37, verses 7, 8, and 11, please. Behold, Pharaoh's army, which has come out for your assistance, is going to return to its, to its own land of Egypt. The Chaldeans will also return and fight against this city, and they will capture it and burn it with fire. Verse 11. Now it happened when the army of the Chaldeans had lifted the siege from Jerusalem because of Pharaoh's army. That's fine. All right, so you get the picture. Once again, the consistency of the crisis in chapter 34 and chapter 37 is identical. It is the lifting of the siege under the approach of the Egyptian army, and Babylon turns south to meet that approaching threat. But they will return. They will come back 
to resume the siege of Jerusalem so that chapter 34 and chapter 37 are set in the same critical mode. Now, within the chapter, what's the paradigm? Now, the paradigm that I've noted in chapter 34 is bondage, release, and bondage. What am I referring to? Bondage, release, and bondage. Who is in bondage in chapter 34? Who is released from bondage in chapter 34? Who is then re-enslaved in bondage in chapter 34? Robert? uh, uh, The Hebrews who... uh sold themselves into slavery for six years. Very good. These are Hebrew slaves. These are Jewish slaves within the city of Jerusalem. All right. They are freed. They are, first of all, enslaved when the chapter opens. They are set free or manumitted by King Zedekiah and by a covenant oath. And then they are re-enslaved, returned to slavery. All right. Keep that pattern in mind against the background of the crisis that we've already identified. All right, now, what's going on in chapter 37? We have a siege. We have the siege lifted and freedom from the siege. We have the siege once again reinstated with Jerusalem besieged again. Notice the similarity in pattern. A pattern of confinement or restriction, which is changed into a pattern of liberty or manumission, and and uh, and then followed by a re-enslavement or an annulment or cancellation of that pattern of liberation. Same sequential, same paradigmatic outline. All right, this draws chapter 34 and chapter 38 together. Chapter 34 and chapter 37 together. All right, now what about chapter 34 and chapter 38? Remember, I am attempting to justify the linkage or the bracketing similarity between chapter 34 and chapters 37 and 38. First of all, in chapter 34, we have the story of the slaves, which Robert already identified. That is a dominant light verter or key word in the Hebrew text of 34. That is that Hebrew word eved. What do we have in chapter 38? Who's the round character in 38? Is Eved Melech. And what does Eved mean? Servant. Servant or? Slave. Slave, yes. All right, so the motif is the same, right? We have a slave motif in chapter 34. We have a slave motif in chapter 38. And the key word, the, <coughs> the light verter in both chapters is this Hebrew word eved, which means slave. All right, <coughs> the oppression is of the slaves in chapter 34. They're oppressed. When they're returned to slavery after having been set free, the oppression in chapter 38 is with respect to Jeremiah. He was set free, and then he's returned to another cistern. So we have a reversal. The freed slaves are re-enslaved. The freed Jeremiah is re-imprisoned. Notice the vocabulary of these two chapters. 
The phrase sword, famine, and pestilence occurs in 34.17 and again in 38.2. The word officials, which in the Hebrew is sarim, plus the phrase all people, occurs in 34.10 and 19 and in 38.4. These are the only two places in these chapters where that vocabulary occurs. Chapters 34 and chapter 38 have this vocabulary. They do not occur in chapters 35, 36, or 37. That is an intentional linkage between 34 and 38. Now, notice one other very interesting thing about chapter 34, verse 5. When somebody has it, please read it for us. You will die in peace, and the spices will burn for your fathers. The former kings who were before you, so they will burn spices for you, and they will lament for you. Alas, Lord, by a spoken word, declares the Lord. Now turn over to chapter 38 and read verse 22. All the women left the palace of the king of Judah, who will be brought out to the officials of the king of Babylon. Those women will say to you, they misled you and overcame you. Those trusted friends of yours, your feet are sunk in the mud. Your friends have deserted you. Who's being addressed in verse 22 of chapter 38? Who are these women talking about or talking to? Is King it is Zedekiah. So in chapter 34, God says to the prophet that they're going to sing a lament over him. Chapter 38 gives you the lament. All right, now finally, the prediction that Judah will be released to bondage in verse 17 of chapter 34, bondage in Babylon, is paralleled by chapter 38, verse 3, in which Judah will be captured. Namely, she will be captured by Babylon and turned into bondage. Once again, we note that 34 has parallels with 37 and 38, so that our argument for the bracketing of this macro structure is supported by the details of the text itself. The narratives bear out the structural narrative similarity. Any questions about that? Then it's break time. Now, in a demonstration of the integrity, then, of the distinct narratives in 37 and 38 and their relationship to 34, the fact that they frame 35 and 36, we now are in a position to suggest an outline of the sequence of events. Now, this is my own outline, and it is tentative, it is not dogmatic, but as a result of my own narrative analysis, some of which you have seen uh, in the uh, first hour this evening, I want to uh, uh, go through this outline so that you get uh, a feel for what I think is the timeline and the event line uh, in this section of Jeremiah. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem. We know that that's true because uh, we have a, a record of it uh, in, and we can date it to late December of 588 or January 587 B.C. 
Now, Egypt under Pharaoh Hophra, and that's the name of this Egyptian Pharaoh who brings his army out of Egypt, as you see on the map. He advances towards Judah sometime after that siege was established. So, question mark, was it in the summer of 587? Was it in the fall of 587? We don't know exactly because there is no date, there's no record of it. There is an allusion to this in uh, Babylonian notes, but uh, nonetheless the Bible is the firm document which indicates that this siege was lifted and it does not date that event, aside from the fact that it occurs uh, after the siege of Jerusalem was established in 587. All right, so we know that Nebuchadnezzar lifts the siege of Jerusalem to meet the Egyptian army as it advances uh, towards the Gaza Strip. Now, here is one thing we didn't comment on, but in chapter 37, verse 19, the false prophets inside Jerusalem predict that Babylon will not return. They predict that they're gone and they're not going to come back. All right, then. I am suggesting that this triggers the release of the slaves in chapter 34. That uh, that release uh, celebrating the lifting of the siege. In other words, they set the slaves free because they were celebrating not only the fact that the Babylonians had withdrawn and uh, left the walls open and they could go in and out of the walls of Jerusalem now for the first time in many months, but also the fact that uh, they were not going to need this slave labor uh, to help them defend the city against the Babylonian Babylonian attack. So there wasn't as much necessity to maintain the slaves in their positions as there was prior to uh, the siege being lifted. All right, now, as a result of the lifting of the siege, Jeremiah is able to move out of the city. So he goes to the gate to go out. He goes to the gate of Benjamin to go out to the territory of Benjamin. The territory of the tribe of Benjamin is north of Jerusalem. It's north of the tribe of Judah. So he's going out of the north end of the city uh, to deal with a personal matter. And that's where he is arrested. See, it all makes sense. How is Jeremiah able to go out of the city? He's able to go out of the city only when the Babylonians are surrounding it, right? So they had to be out away from the walls. He had the, the siege had to be lifted for him to be free to go out. He moves out with uh, perfect freedom, at least he thinks so, until he's arrested by Elijah and accused of treason. Then as a result of that accusation, he's put in the pit at Jonathan's house and Egypt... We turn our attention now back to uh, uh, Babylon confronting Egypt. Egypt retreats from the advancing Babylonian army and Nebuchadnezzar returns to reimpose the siege of Jerusalem. All right, so the siege is now uh, encircling the city once again. And Jeremiah is released by Zedekiah to the court of the guard. Now... The slaves in chapter 34 are re-enslaved. Why? Well, my suggestion here, there's nothing in the text to support it, but my suggestion here is that they are re-enslaved in order to serve as slave labor as the siege has been renewed. In other words, some necessity 
causes the Jewish masters to change their mind about that covenant of manumission or emancipation that they had given to the slaves shortly beforehand. And I'm suggesting that what changes their mind is the fact that they need this slave labor. They need the manpower to help them uh, defend their lives and defend the city against the Babylonian siege. Now, as a result of this, Jeremiah unmasks the false prophets who predicted that Nebuchadnezzar would not return. I noted that up as I noted chapter 3719. Uh, Jeremiah will talk about the fact that uh, they are false prophets because Babylon is back around the gates. Then he preaches surrender. Uh, Here's a place where I can't solve whether it's openly or from the court of the guard. But nonetheless, uh, he is in Jerusalem, able to preach where people can hear him. And he talks about surrendering to the Babylonians so that they will live. If they uh, continue to defy the Babylonians, then they are going to die. As a result of that preaching, he's rearrested for treason and now put in another pit, a pit in Malchiah's, Malchiah's house or Malchiah's property, as the case may be. Enter Abed-Melech. He frees Jeremiah with Zedekiah's permission from the pit in Melchiah's house or on his property. And now the Judean deserters go over to Babylon. Now, these deserters are mentioned in chapter 38. They go over to Babylon because they know the game is up. You're noticing here that I don't argue that the, the, the deserters abandon Jerusalem when the siege is lifted. Why not? There'd be no reason to desert when the siege was lifted. When the Babylonians are gone and the false prophets are saying to the people of Judah and Jerusalem that they're not going to come back, you wouldn't desert, would you? You wouldn't desert to the enemy. You wouldn't go over to the Babylonian lines. You'd stay there and say, they're not going to come back. You know, let's have a celebration. Let's have a party. All right. So these deserters have left in chapter 38. Why have they left? Because with the siege of Jerusalem reinstated, They know that it's only a matter of time. And so they sneak out somehow and join the opposition. Jeremiah is released to the court of the guard the second time, this time from the pit on Malchiah's property, and Jerusalem is breached and destroyed, finally by Babylon between June and August of 586 B.C. Once again, these dates at the top and the bottom of this uh, suggested outline are firm. Uh, We can confirm them from other parallel chronologies. So you will notice that Jerusalem was under siege for over 18 months, for over a year and a half. There was a break in the siege when uh, they uh, lifted it to uh, uh, meet the Egyptian threat. But nonetheless, uh, when the Egyptians turned tail and ran, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's troops were back surrounding the walls of Jerusalem to uh, punish it for the final time and to destroy it and raise the temple to the ground. All right, now that's my scenario for how these events in chapters 34 to 38 follow chronologically, how they interface with one another. 
this is uh, my explanation of what is the most sensible uh, coordination of the events in these chapters. The key point is the siege being lifted. That's the key point. That's the hinge point of the drama in which this in which the narrative changes, in which things get freed up a little bit, they, which which uh, Jerusalem and Judah feel a little bit relieved. And, but nonetheless, it's short-lived, and uh, 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 the Babylonian army is around the walls uh, 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 soon after that siege is lifted, and uh, they're, they're in for the duration and the final destruction. Any questions about that suggestion? Ben? I just have a question, unrelated in a way. But how large a population would we be talking about? Do you have any idea how many people live there? In, in Jerusalem, uh, you'll notice that it's, excuse me, it's a very small amount when you read the note of the final destruction in Second Kings 24, 25, and in uh, Jeremiah 52, where they give some uh, census of who was carried away. Uh, about 800 in this final census. Um, I, I think that uh, we're talking about a population of above 20,000, though some of it has been eroded by the 597 siege, uh, the second siege of Jerusalem. Uh, but uh, more than that, I'm, I'm not confident that we can say with any certainty. We can guess. Uh, it is not as large an entourage as goes into Assyrian captivity uh, when Samaria collapses in 722. The Assyrians carry away population from 10 tribes. That's a significant amount of people. We've only got two small tribes left here. And uh, people uh, are not out in the hinterland of Judah and Benjamin, not, at least not many of them, because there's too much, there's too much warfare going on there, there. Even as the Rechabites, the Rechabites comes inside the walls. They, you know, they are... They are lifelong nomads, and they dwell in tents, but here they are, the inside the walls of Jerusalem. Why are they inside the walls of Jerusalem? Because they're taking refuge from the Babylonian siege, from the Babylonian army. <clears throat> and so I think that's true in general in the hinterland of Judah and Benjamin. <clears throat> Scott? If that latter point is true, how do they have enough food to survive for 18 months? I mean, have they really been saving up for years? I mean, they know this is coming or what? Now, one of the things about the cisterns is that the cisterns can be used for storage of grain. <clears throat> so <clears throat> there would have been grain storage in cisterns on many properties inside the walls of Jerusalem. We know about at least two cisterns on properties inside Jerusalem, one in Jonathan's house and one on the property that Malchiah uh, uh, controls. <clears throat> Uh, these cisterns are significant enough <clears throat> that they could hold a large amount of grain. So conceivably, you could be making bread for many, many months. Eventually, the bread would run out. You'll see that at the end of chapter 38. There's a note. Um, <clears throat> yes, at the end of 37 and 21, there's a note about the fact that uh, Jeremiah received a loaf of bread each day until the bread ran out. And when you read the narratives of the destruction of the city, then you also uh, read uh, these horror stories about cannibalism and so on and so forth going on inside the city because there was a lack of enough bread. But there would have been grain sufficient for uh, uh, part of the siege, and then as it dribbled out, then, of course, uh, the exigency 
pressed in upon them. Starvation occurred, <clears throat> uh, pestilence, that is, plague or, or infections spread, <clears throat> etc. So all of that would, would, would go along with, with the war, but, yeah, but there would have been uh, enough food for part of it. That would be typical of a walled city. They would have been prepared uh, in the event of an attack, at least to last a while. Same way with the Masada community, and same way with the Qumran community. They had uh, <clears throat> grain and they had uh, water stored so that they could survive uh, a, an attack. All right, now, uh, a couple of uh, details about various verses in uh, chapters 37 and 38, beginning with the name Jehukal in chapter 37, verse 3. This is the same individual who is called Jukal in chapter 38, verse 1. Spelling is slightly different, but it is the same individual. You'll notice in this third verse, of chapter 37, that uh, Zephaniah is is mentioned. He's also mentioned in chapter 21. Uh, And in that 21st chapter, there is a prayer of Jeremiah recorded. Notice uh, what Zephaniah and and Jehuko are asking for here in 37.3. They're asking Jeremiah to pray to the Lord on their behalf. And in chapter 21, we have a prayer of Jeremiah. Is it the same prayer? In other words, has Jeremiah's prayer of of the incident in chapter 37 been moved forward in the book to chapter 21? I'm not uh, going to uh, answer that question yes or no. I think it's an intriguing observation, so I leave it at that. Uh, it's possible that the prayer Jeremiah uttered is, in fact, recorded in chapter 21 on this occasion. You remember that God had told Jeremiah not to pray for Judah and Jerusalem. Now, obviously, that prayer in 21 suggests that he did pray. So the word of God, and he was not to pray, means he's not to pray at the time God was speaking to him on that moment. But that was not a generic, don't pray ever for them. And obviously, this is an indication that uh, Jeremiah did pray uh, when God gave him permission to do so. Now, in chapter 29, uh, verses 24 to 32, Zephaniah appears again. And that 29th chapter, you recall, is Jeremiah's letter to the exiles who are already in Babylon. Now, those are the exiles who had been carried away in 597 when Jehoiakim died and Jehoiakim took his place. And Jehoiakim then, of course, capitulated within three months. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> many were carried off to Babylon and Jeremiah writes them a letter. And in that letter, uh, Zephaniah is, uh, is specified uh, because, or in that chapter, Zephaniah is specified because uh, he receives a letter from a fellow named Shalemiah, who is in uh, captivity with the exiles in Babylon, a letter in which he writes to Zephaniah, the priest, asking why he has not arrested and executed Jeremiah. So Zephaniah is the recipient of a letter 
from the exiles in Babylon, a letter in which this fellow Shelemiah rails against Jeremiah uh, as a false prophet. So there's another occasion in which Zephaniah appears in the book. And the final appearance of Zephaniah is in the last chapter of Jeremiah, verse 24 of chapter 52, when he is captured by Nebuchadnezzar or by the uh, armies of Babylon and obviously taken to captivity in Babylon. So there is uh, a little bit more about Zephaniah than just is mentioned here in 37. Uh, He does have a role at certain points in uh, Jeremiah's biography. But that doesn't answer the question, why are they asking him to pray? Why is Zedekiah vetting this request to pray? Why does Zedekiah believe that prayer will do any good? After all, he's obviously not a God-fearing man. He's not devoted to the commandments of the Lord God. He's called an evil man in 2 Kings 24 and in Jeremiah 52. Why does he want him to pray? It doesn't help, it can't <laughs> <laughs> But he's obviously asking for something which has to do with a rabbit's foot. In other words, he looks at Jeremiah as a kind of a rabbit's foot. You're my good luck charm, so you pray. But why would he even think that prayer would work in this siege? Yes, when? Hezekiah. Yes, in the days of Hezekiah. What's the date? Who's around the walls this time? You said you were going over your dates, Kay. I'm only picking up on the clue you gave me. Loretta loved that one. Okay. I just read that in Isaiah. Yes. And you can date it. I know. All right, well, who's around the walls? It's not the Babylonians. It's the Assyrians, and who's the king? What was Hezekiah? No, it's King Hezekiah of Judah, correct. I'm sorry, who's the king of Assyria? (laughs) Always waiting to say no. (laughs) It's Sennacherib. (laughs) King Sennacherib is around the walls of Jerusalem. Hezekiah is the king. Isaiah is his prophet, even as Jeremiah is the prophet here to Zedekiah. And he prays to the Lord, and the Lord assures him that the city is not going to fall, correct? And in fact, it is delivered. It's delivered by the angel of the Lord, slaying 185,000 of the Assyrian troops. Okay, so that date is 701 B.C. Okay, that event was in the memory of Zedekiah. And he said, well, prayer worked back then. Okay, worked for Hezekiah, worked for Isaiah, you know, you know, I'm your man, Jeremiah. Okay, pray for us. <laughs> maybe it'll, maybe it'll, maybe we'll have an instant replay here. Okay, all right. I think that's what may be behind this request for prayer. It's not a devout request. It's a self-serving and selfish request. Get me out of this tight jam. Get this army off my back. You know, ask God to do what to the Babylonians what He did to the Assyrians. Come on, Jeremiah, get with it. I think that's what's behind this request. All right. Now, in verse 5, the Pharaoh is uh, is indicated coming with his army. 
uh, he is identified in chapter 44, verse 30 of Jeremiah by name. It is Pharaoh Hophra, or Aprius, he is named uh, by the Greeks, successor to Psamtik II or Semeticus II in 589 B.C., and he will rule until 570, of course, all the way through this period of the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, this event in which Pharaoh Hophra brings his army out of Egypt in order to help Judah against the Babylonians is referred to not only in the book of Jeremiah. It's also referred to in much more elaboration in Ezekiel chapter 17. So if you want to expand upon this incident of the Egyptian uh, venture into southern Judah uh, during the siege of uh, Jerusalem, and the Babylonians went out to meet them, then take a look at those verses in Ezekiel 17, and you'll notice a fuller description of this worthless ally, this treacherous ally that Egypt proved to be with respect to uh, Judah's relief. Now, we've noticed that in our description of the location in 37 and 38, that there is a location uh, with respect to the Benjamin, the gate of Benjamin in both of those chapters. Now, the question is, where is the Benjamin gate? <clears throat> it's never been discovered archaeologically, and yet we know that because Jeremiah wanted to go into the territory of Benjamin, that that is north of Jerusalem. Notice verse 12 of chapter 37. That is north of Jerusalem. The the Benjamin gate must have been facing the territory of Benjamin on the north side of the wall of Jerusalem. All right, so on the schematic maps that you have of Jerusalem at the time of the collapse in 586 B.C., you'll always see the Benjamin gate on the north wall. I think that's a logical, reasonable uh, location for the wall because of what we find here in the text of chapter 37. In verse 15 of chapter 37, uh, Jeremiah is beaten, but the, uh, the literal force of this Hebrew expression is they wanted to beat him in order to kill him. And that's underscored by the fact that the uh, an- that the officials are angry. They are, in fact, enraged. They're so enraged that they want to destroy his life. Now, this is not the first time that Jeremiah was beaten. He was beaten back in chapter 20, verse 2. And I know that's taking you a long time uh, back in our studies, but who was responsible for beating him then? It's the officials here back in chapter 20. It's a fellow named Pasher. You remember Pasher. And Jeremiah <coughs> prophesied that Pasher would go into captivity in Babylon and there he would die. So ben, so uh, Jeremiah has been beaten several times in his life. And this time beaten very severely. Uh, the, they wanted to, to kill him. Uh, it, it's a, a wonder that they did not, but they didn't. Now they threw him into the cistern on Jonathan's property. And this cistern 
different from the cistern on Malchiah's property in the next chapter, is a cistern which consisted of a vaulted ceiling and probably a sealed paved floor. It was a storage cistern either for water or for grain or for other foodstuffs. And uh, it was probably, because of it having a vaulted ceiling, it was probably extremely cramped. That is, Jeremiah could not stand upright in it. It wasn't tall enough for that, but it was uh, large enough to store a significant amount of water or foodstuffs. It was no fun then being confined to that cistern, which is the reason that Jeremiah pleads at the end of this chapter with Zedekiah not to be sent back there lest he would die. He would die from the cramping. He would die from the poor air. He would die just from the uh, the fact that uh, he could become ill and uh, and perish uh, there underground. All right, now in verse 19, you'll notice that uh, this is where Jeremiah talks about the false prophets who had predicted that Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar's army would not come again. And uh, we have already had a false prophet named in this book. And in chapter 28, false prophet Hananiah is uh, is listed by name. And does anyone remember what happened to Hananiah in that 28th chapter? He dies within a few months of confronting Jeremiah and Jeremiah responding with the charge that he is a false prophet. Uh, Now, those other verses that are listed there under verse 19 are indications of other false prophets uh, in general. There was a whole lobby of them in Jerusalem. It's just not just one or two, but there's a whole group of these false prophets, and we dealt with them in detail when we looked at chapter 23. All right, now in chapter 38, verse 1, we have another pasher. In fact, we have two pashers in this verse, and neither one of them are the pasher who beat Jeremiah in chapter 20, verse 2. These are distinct pashers, and so you see that the name is fairly common, even though it uh, looks a little strange to us. Now, the cistern in this chapter is a mud pit. So it has no sealed floor or paved floor. And it's probably not a vaulted ceiling. It is a ceiling in which any of the plaster that may have composed the vault has been eroded away or rotted away. And now mud and silt is dropping down from the roof onto the floor and creating a a pile of muck. And it is into this mire that Jeremiah sinks as he's lowered into this cistern. And had he not been rescued by Ebed-Melech, he would have suffocated. He would have actually drowned in the mud eventually. It was that deep. Now, we've noticed uh, who is uh, in the gate before in verse 7 in this chapter. Uh, Ebed-Melech goes out to uh, Zedekiah, and Zedekiah is sitting in the gate. Now, we have to ask a question, why is Zedekiah sitting in the gate? What does someone do who is a royal figure or a ruler? What does 
What does he do when he sits at the gate? Terry? He judges. He judges. He makes judgments, all right? He is particularly there to uh, pose as an advocate for the poor and the needy. Do you detect any irony here? Here is Zedekiah sitting at the gate of the city, larding out supposed justice, being an advocate perhaps for the poor and the needy. And, of course, his whole administration has oppressed the poor and the needy. And what's going to happen to the poor and the needy when he is no longer at the gate, but when he has his eyes put out with red-hot irons and is carried off to captivity? In Babylon, what about the poor and the needy that supposedly he was defending back in Jerusalem? What happened to them? They were killed by the sword or they were carried off into captivity. So much for his sitting at the gate and being the advocate of the poor and the needy. His foolishness as a ruler will lead to the death, captivity, and exile of those who he's allegedly poster boarding, posturing, posing for photo ops with the poor and the needy. Is this guy a politician or is this guy a politician? This guy is a politician. That's the reason he sits at the gate. He doesn't care about the poor and needy. He only cares about making sure that he is seen. Now, verse 10 talks about Zedekiah telling Ebed-Melech to take 30 men to bring up Jeremiah from the cistern. Now, many of the modern versions don't like this number 30 here. 30 men to get Jeremiah out of a pit. And so they will amend this passage. That is, they'll change the text to read three men. Take three men with you. All right, now let's think a little bit about that. <clears throat> Once again, it's the liberal higher critics who love to do this. They like to change numbers because they don't like them. They think they're too big. And in this case, they think 30 is too many. Let's, uh, <clears throat> let's think about this. Who has, uh, has said that they want Jeremiah in this pit? Notice verse 4. Terry? The officials. the officials. Is this a group of one or two officials? I don't think so. Ah, this is a whole lobby of officials. See, these, these officials got lobbies all over Jerusalem. See, they operate like PACs, you know, like political action groups, all right? So <clears throat> they got these groups all over the city. So why does Zedekiah say take 30 men? Because he knows that there's a formidable body of officials that are arrayed against him on releasing Jeremiah. So take 30 men with you. You're going to need 30 men to protect you and Jeremiah when you get him out of that pit. Because there's an awful lot of opposition in this city to Jeremiah being set free. So we'll keep 30 because it's in the text. All right? Good enough for me. We won't mess around with changing the words of of the Bible just because we think that's too many. (laughs) There could be a reasonable explanation for why there are 30 guys in this troop. All right. Now, in verse 14, what is this third entrance?
Do you get the scene? When Zedekiah allows Ebed-Melech to release Jeremiah, he has Jeremiah come to him. Where is he? In the temple. Not in the temple. He's in his palace. He's in his palace. But what's this third entrance? This third entrance is the secret room or the secret doorway between the royal palace and the temple court. So bring him in through the secret entrance so that all those officials don't see him. Otherwise, they're going to get upset and somebody else is going to get upset. Who else is going to get upset? Those that have gone over to the Chaldeans, namely the deserters. So he doesn't want anybody (coughs) to... uh, publicly be aware of this beyond the group of rescuers and Evan Melech and Jeremiah himself. So that's the reason he brings him in by this third entrance, which is a secret entrance between the palace and the temple. All right, now notice verse 16. Zedekiah swears to preserve the life of Jeremiah. He swears an oath that he will preserve the life of Jeremiah. Now, he had already tossed him into a cistern before, and Jeremiah had to beg for his life on that one, right? So what do you think this oath is worth? And after all, Isn't this the king who took an oath to Nebuchadnezzar that he would be his loyal subject and vassal? And what did he do with that oath? He broke his word. Would you trust a ruler like this with your life? If you would... I'm not sure you're too smart, because after all, Zedekiah is a confirmed habitual liar. And he can lie with the best of the rulers. So, Jeremiah, I hope, is not taken off guard by this pledge. All right. What about Christ in this narrative? We've talked a lot about the historical details, the narrative sequence, the plot itself, the consistency of the uh, megastructure and the, the macrostructure and the chiasm. What about Christ? We can't leave this without asking about our Lord. The broad point of relationship is in the role of suffering. Jeremiah arrested Jesus 
arrested. Jeremiah beaten, Jesus beaten. Beaten with a flogging rope, thorns three inches long, pressed into his skull. Yes, that long, pressed into his skull. Jesus beaten. Jeremiah threatened with death. Jesus threatened with death and put to death. There's a reflection of the passion of the eschatological Jeremiah in the passion of the protological Jeremiah. The specific protest of innocence from sin is parallel. It is parallel in both passion narrative. Jeremiah asks in chapter 37, verse 18, In what way have I sinned against you that you punish me? Jesus, in his trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, asked, For what wrong do you strike me? John chapter 18, verse 23. Both the protological and eschatological Jeremiah are innocent of the charges lodged against them. Now, having said that, I do not mean to suggest by this parallel that Jeremiah is sinless. The antitype always exceeds the type in moral character in Scripture. The antitype always exceeds the type in moral character in Scripture. The sufferings of Jeremiah in the face of the great and final judgment on Old Testament Judah and Jerusalem anticipates, if they do not actually incarnate, the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ in the face of the great and final judgment on the sin of his people. A greater than Jeremiah is here, for he does what Jeremiah could never do. He rises from the death of his exile in but three short days. The land of bondage cannot hold Jesus of Nazareth. The curse of divine wrath has no power over Jesus of Nazareth, he having once for all satisfied the conditions of that cursed wrath. Death itself is put to death by Jesus of Nazareth in eternal resurrection life. Jeremiah drives you to Jesus. Our Father, we thank you for these chapters of the word of your servant, the great prophet Jeremiah. And we understand that in his sufferings, there is a portrayal of the sufferings of his very Lord. Indeed, he is conformed to the death and to the resurrection of Christ even before the time. In the fullness of the times, Lord, we too are not exempt from being pressed down into the sufferings and and into the resurrection life of our Savior Jesus. We pray then, O Lord, that this work of the prophet Jeremiah may fortify us not only our faith and understanding of the word and the narrative of the text, 
but our understanding of your dealing with your servant. You're allowing him to suffer. You're allowing him to be the witness to the death of a nation, the death of a city, the death of a culture. You're allowing him to live beyond that death, even in exile himself. Lord, we do not know what is in our future. We do not know whether we will be called to endure suffering and persecution, even in our day and in our lifetime. But if we do, enable us to identify with Jeremiah and most sweetly to identify with our crucified and risen Savior, great Son of God, your very delight and our gracious Redeemer. We go on our way rejoicing not only in the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, but in the word of the Lord in these last days through the greater Jeremiah, in whose name we pray. Amen. Chapter 39 next week. As we indicated earlier this evening, the story of the destruction of Jerusalem. 